0: Master text on repentance comes before us on a communion Sunday. This is what we would have considered in any case this particular day. But certainly, very appropriate when we come to the Lord's table is the reminder that repentance is absolutely vital in everyone's regular approach to God. I remind you of something I've said more than once, and perhaps you say it enough times it will be understood as. We've studied David and his rise to be God's man. I remind you how 1 Samuel 15 taught us about King Saul and what was wrong, why he was not accepted as God's king, a proud, confident leader caught more than once in blatant disobedience to God. And when confronted with that, Saul would usually say first time he was innocent Then maybe faced with evidence or the thunderings of a prophet, he would say, well, maybe I disobeyed a little, but he still could blame others or find an excuse. And then Saul would posture and bargain and consult with his public relations agent, how can I make this look good so I'm not shamed before the people? And eventually he might come out with some shallow words that would look like repentance but really not be. Then we have King David, who wrote this 51st Psalm, the man after God's heart who has not looked like that or acted like that in our recent recognition of his brazen sin against God and against others. And he thought, maybe a little bit like Saul, that he could get away with it, he could cover it up, that nobody would really know what what had gone on. But immediately when he was confronted, the big difference from Saul is David did not quibble He did not pass the buck. He did not bargain. He did not relabel his conduct. He fell on his face in deep remorse. That God's Word shows us a premier example of it, these words that he wrote in the 51st Psalm, of true, authentic, God-accepted sorrow for personal sin. And so we know from the record that David received divine forgiveness for things that seem every bit as black, maybe you would say even worse on the surface than anything solved it. But the two men are intended for contrast and comparison. So we would see what it is for a truly contrite and humble person to be able to say, have mercy on me, O God, and hear that prayer be answered. Now, I don't have Time or wherewithal for a comprehensive coverage of this wonderful psalm. It's been spoken on in past days, and I'm really just going to glance off certain points of it today, not even pretending that we're covering all of it. I hope you would understand the practicality of that. It's deserving of a small series where we would really take it apart. But what I want you to see here is what a truly penitent believer does in recognition of his wrong before the Lord. He sees it as an attack against God Most High and admits that. He says to God, you would be just if you blotted me out. And yet this same guilty seeker, bowing as he does, finds delight and amazement that God does forgive. He does. Remember, we said last time, God greets the penitent one in grace. If he didn't, No repentance would be effectual at all if God was not graciously inclined. He is ready to blot out the sin. I'm I'm asking three questions of the text today. They are this, what is the core problem here? To whom did David appeal? And what is the divine solution suited to the problem? First of all, what's the core problem? I'm not going to dwell on the crime, you probably know it very well, and most of you have been here as we looked at the blatant lust and adultery and abuse of power and even setting up tantamount to the murder of Uriah. David did not fall from grace by any half measure. He fell more like in a suicide dive off a high cliff. It's amazing that such a man could do what he did. And yet, don't you think God gave us that amazement so that we would not be surprised at ourselves or anyone we know when that person or we do the worst that could be imagined of us? And isn't this an example saying that God can forgive anyone of anything that may seem horrible in man's sight? Notice verse 3 as the guilty king says, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. His sin wasn't always ugly to him, but now it's like a handful of ashes in his mouth. At one time, it tasted sweet, and many kinds of sin and disobedience against God do indeed taste sweet and are quite pleasurable at first. But now David is saying, it's ever before me. It haunts me night and day. It won't leave me alone." It's almost like David was wearing a necklace of live scorpions who were biting him all the day long and even in the watches of the night. I think one of the reasons many Christians do not repent as radically as David did is we find all kinds of ways of telling ourselves, well, it wasn't really such a bad thing that I did. I can name it something else, I can always kind of sand the rough edges off it and tell myself it was a special case or I had provocation or, you know, things were just unfortunate that they happened as they did. I wonder if we shouldn't even pray sometimes that God would make us miserable and discontented in our deceitful habits because that misery brought on by the Holy Spirit would move us to the place of David seeing himself as the chief of sinners. We talked about that term last week. John Bunyan writing his autobiography and calling it grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Paul calling himself the chief of sinners. Do we believe day in, day out, week in, week out, that we deserve that? I dare say we don't. Most of the time we would say, well, I'm a fair to middling sinner or actually I'm a pretty respectable sinner. The pretty respectable sinner is the one in the biggest problem situation the broken sinner who says, how could this have happened? What can be done? How can I ever face my God? That is the person who's on the way to David's kind of forgiveness. You see, it's God that sponsors conviction of sin. He lets it dig in under our skin and and make us aware of it because misery over it is a first step towards recovery. John Calvin wrote once to say, we will never seriously apply to God for pardon until we have obtained such a view of our sin as inspires us to a holy fear. Holy fear. The understanding that we have wronged a most holy God. Now, David says in here in verses 5 and 6, he says, I was born this way. Surely I was sinful from my birth, from the time of my conception. God desires truth in the inward parts. Do you see what he's differentiating there? He's saying, I'm not just responsible for certain little acts, or I always love the word peccadillos, you know, a little bitty fault, something that really isn't too big. It's not just little acts that I've done. I've got something wrong that's in my genes and in my bones that has to be cleared up. Sin is a native condition of my heart and my mind. I was born with it. And I need a resolution that goes right back to the source, not just to deal with this little act over here or that lie over there or this deception over here. I need a deep thing that will work with me and change me in my inward parts. Suppose you had a little creek running through your property and One day you're mowing the lawn and you notice there's a strange sulfurous smell or something coming from the little creek and you realize the water is very polluted and smelling ugly. And you can't see that anything has been dumped or, or there's anything wrong in your part of the property that should cause this. And maybe you got a state official out or somebody to do some testing and they were able to trace it up quite a ways, maybe a mile away to a source where something had been dumped that was polluting the whole creek and making the waters toxic for life and very unpleasant. And you would know, well, then don't just come and treat the water in my little quarter acre section of the creek, go to the source. Deal with the source to purify this stream and make it uh, alive again. That's what David's saying. This isn't just a little act. This is something that goes to the roots of my own personality and the way I've been made. God I need something that you can do going to the very source and root. I can't do it. I need a radical reconciliation with you. Well then we ask, to whom does the sinner appeal? And that answer is pretty obvious here. The key word in verse 4 of our psalm, David says, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge me. God is the offended party. I think here again, simple and basic as this is, we don't often see it. We think the way to remedy sin, oh, well, I spoke sharply to my wife or I deceived the boss or I did this or that. Against an individual. I better go apologize. I better go try to make it right with the secondary person who I hurt. And we don't stop and think, I offended the God of truth. I have to start with Him. I have to be like Joseph in the Old Testament when he was tempted by lust to Potiphar's wife. You remember the story when she tried to attract Joseph to be unfaithful with her, and he was horrified and said as he ran away, how could I do such a wicked thing against God? It wasn't simply the threat of Potiphar, the the boss who actually owned him as a slave. That was wrong, of course, and, and had he committed adultery with Potiphar's wife, he would have owed Potiphar an apology. Just as David owed Bathsheba an apology, he certainly owed Uriah an apology that could never be delivered now that he's dead. But David says, no, the fundamental matter is I've offended God. And whoever else I hurt, I have to go to the one who is the most offended. You hear a foolish thing frequently said today. Young people will say it. Older people will say it. They try to justify various kinds of behavior. And they'll say, well, you know, your morality and your… Ten Commandments and all those things are fine, but I just try to behave and live my life the way I see it as long as no one gets hurt. Tell me you haven't heard that. As long as no one gets hurt. Well, just about anything we do, contrary to the will of God, hurts somebody. Whether it's a simple little subterfuge within the family or a a lie to a spouse something dishonest, something angry, striking out against another person, hurtful words, other people get hurt. The New Testament says even our bodies are not our own. If we think, you know, that that we only do something with our body and it's my business only, no. You don't live to yourself and you don't die to yourself. You belong to God. Our sin always hurts other human beings in some way. And it always, without a doubt, Hurts our God. But David does something here that might be a strategy in in a courtroom today. If you were called up for commission of a felony or some perhaps serious thing and had an attorney representing you, he might come and enter what we would call a character plea. And he would say, Oh, I know, Judge, this individual has attended Westminster Presbyterian Church, perfect attendance at Sunday school every year for 20 years why he's a Boy Scout leader, why he led the United Way. Eh, he's, he's worked faithfully and earned high marks from his, his employer. And your character would be pled towards your innocence, or at least towards forgiveness, perhaps. But when David enters a plea here, you notice it's not his character that he pleads. It is a character plea, but it's God's character. Have mercy on me, O God, According to my good deeds and how well I've been doing most of my life? No, sir. According to your faithful, unfailing love. According to your character of grace and compassion, O God. David knew he couldn't say, God, you know I have rights. I'm a king. Uh, I get maneuvered into places where it's difficult to do what's right every time. Please think about all my… Diff- no, he doesn't say any of that. And he doesn't say, I'm entitled, I have rights. He says, I plead your covenant love, your mercy, your unfailing character, who you are. That's what I plead. If you ever find yourself even subconsciously, even not speaking the words out loud, but somehow praying to God when you are thinking about something you've done wrong and you say, well, God, you know, I've, please balance this against all the good I've done all the other times and, and uh, you know, there were special circumstances. Even if you're not speaking it out loud, please clamp your hand over your mouth and stop speaking it and stop thinking it. Plead the character of God, not your own. Because your character is always at least part, if not all, of the problem it's not the solution. Thirdly today, consider this question that's asked and answered in this text, what divine action is best suited to the sinner's need? There are two things, I believe, here, two slightly different things that God did for David. The first is in verses 1 and 2 when he prays, blot out my transgression. He wants the legal record of his sin changed. God, remove that page. By your justifying grace, and we use that word justification, God making right or changing the ledger, imputing the righteousness of Christ in place of our unrighteousness. Make the ledger read differently. He's praying what Isaiah fifty-three twenty-five said when God spoke there and said, I am he who blots out your transgression. They won't show up anymore and I do this for my own sake, I remember your sin no more. Think of that. The perfect mind, the perfect memory says, I choose not to remember it. It's as good as a page removed from the book that doesn't read there anymore. There's a clean new page in its place. That is the legal forgiveness of God, the justifying forgiveness. But David also prays for something more personal. Maybe we would call it the sanctifying part of it, the progressive thing that happens once we're justified. When he says in verse 7, uh, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me. and or I'm sorry, that's before that. But in verse 7, he says, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. The legal part, he says can be taken care of, but still I might feel dirty and guilty and ashamed. And I wouldn't be assured that you have forgiven me, so I need help with that. You show your age as a recognizer of advertising jingles, and you're more than a teenager if you remember the ads for a certain… I can't even tell you what the detergent was some years ago that advertised that they would clean ring around the collar. Remember that? ring around the collar, that stubborn grime that clings to your clothing even after you've washed it. That's what David says. Even though I've been justified, God, even though you put it away, I feel dirty. I still feel stained. There's a ring around my soul. Will you wash that away too and give me assurance of how I stand in you? I can remember reading in various novels or works of pioneer days of what an arduous task washing was once upon a time in early days. That uh, Today, of course, it's still a piece of work, but much easier with all of our mechanization. But first thing you had to do to wash clothes in pioneer days was make the soap, and that was hard work. You had to boil lye and all this stuff, I don't know, tallow and what all they use to boil together and make this rough caustic soap. Then you took your clothes and dragged some water in from somewhere and boiled some more clean water and scrubbed the clothes either on a rock or a tin washboard or something, and maybe you got them clean, maybe you didn't. Well, anyone who counsels, I'm sure Dr. Light in his abundant counseling meets people who are trying to scrub their sins away, that method. Maybe I can summon up some kind of soap, and if I scrub hard enough and boil enough water, I can get myself cleaned up. What David was really praying here is, Lord, you have to unsin me. You have to take the grime from around my collar. Only you can do this. And he prays here an an interesting thing that we think points to prophecy. I want to point this out before I close. He says, purge me with hyssop, Is that just one of those strange Old Testament words that we're not supposed to understand or is it important? I think it's a prophetic word. Exodus 12 tells us of the instructions of God for the Passover meal in Israel when they took the lamb, killed the lamb, and roasted it to eat, and they would take a piece of the hyssop plant, which was a sort of sponge-like plant with a stalk, and they would dip the hyssop plant in the blood and sprinkle the doorways the doorposts. And you remember that, that death would, they believe, pass over. God said that death would pass over their houses in Egypt. And they were doing that as a reminder that it was blood that was required to forgive sin. How interesting. David prays here, purge me with hyssop. I need the application of blood. I'm not fabricating the idea that this would point forward to the only application of blood that suffices to remove sin, the blood of Jesus Christ that came, of course, in history many centuries after David. And yet, it was that that people were looking forward to as they looked for their Messiah. They were looking forward to the fact that Messiah would bring true the promise of Isaiah 1 where God says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So might we conclude this morning for a brief look at this psalm that true repentance is necessary to us. Sure God is gracious, but He looks for those who come and truly repent, and Psalm 51 is the repentance handbook that He's given us. You too must take ownership of your sin without excuses, without passing blame, without saying, oh God, it happened because of the wife you gave me has done this and so on. No. I take ownership. And it might even seem risky to cast yourself into the hands of the very God who is holy and offended, but we're promised that this God is gracious, and He will give a deep and eternal cleansing in the blood of Christ. There's so much more that could be said, but I haven't even spoken about the wonderful fruits of this repentance. They're just hinted at here, the reassuring presence of the Holy Spirit the restored joy of salvation, a tongue to speak and testify to others that your life could say, I know what forgiveness is. I know the God of grace. All those things come in their place. Charles Spurgeon said once, sorrow for sin in the life of a Christian comes down like a perpetual rain, a soft, sweet shower that lasts all your life long and sponsors and feeds spiritual growth in us. Sorrow for sin should sponsor real repentance, and the joy follows. May you discover the quiet promise of Isaiah 51, 17, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will never despise. Father, help us to learn this kind of repentance not because by being remorseful or beating ourselves or posturing before you, we're going to earn your grace, but by deep and true humility, we respond to your grace in a way that you are pleased. Father, help the broken person. Help the one who has been beaten down by their sin and is very discouraged about it. Show them the wonderful, sweet rewards that conviction of that sin bring when we speak it to you, and the blood of Christ covers and cleanses. Thank you that Jesus is the fulfillment of all this. We pray in his name. Amen.